If you are willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now, murderous. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks, in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. We're going to have our announcements now from Steve. Uh, while Steve is giving the announcements, we're going to take our collections. The first collection is, as always, for the general fund, and the second collection this week is for the building repairs fund. Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everyone. Well, it's sort of everyone, isn't it? It's a bit thin on the ground today. I ought to have said thank you to Sophie before she left. She, was, she sat on about ten different seats to try and make it look more full uh, or to try and get nearer to her dad while he was reading, I'm not sure. It's really good to see you all here anyway, especially Abigail and Ben, who are visiting us today. Uh, you're swelling our numbers, so that's great. Thank you very much for that. Um, you can see Mike's leading the service. He's already mentioned that Richard Gaston is uh, giving us words of excitation this morning. Um, Christine's prepared the table. Somebody has prepared the flowers. Thanks, Christine, uh, in Ruth's absence. And Martin and Julia are due to be in the creche. It's a bring and share lunch today, but if you haven't brought, you're still allowed to share, so please come and join us. Um, tonight is reunion night, which I think Charles is leading, um, but that will be at, I presume, at the usual time of 6 p.m., in this hall this evening, to one of the management committee. I don't have any formal um, care news, although there are a couple of people who said to me that they want to to mention a few things. Um, so please keep in your minds anybody that you'd like us to pray about in a moment, please. 
Um, Rosie, could you update us on Peter, please? can't get out under his own steam okay yeah thanks Rosie it sounds like he needs some company thank you for that Janet so offers of a lift for Peter a week on Friday to get to the MRI by nine o'clock to Rosie on a postcard please that's all right one of the Halstead's friends Elaine was reminding me, Amy Lee, who we've prayed about a number of times, is due to go into hospital tomorrow um, to have some treatment on her for her lung condition. Or, um, her mum particularly finds it really difficult when the daughter goes into hospital and really appreciates our thoughts and prayers for her. Unfortunately, her mum, Tracy's also got um, some health issues at the moment and her father has recently died, so... That's a family who need a lot of care. I'm sure they're getting some from Mark and Elaine and others, but um, we will remember them too. Father, I heard the words that you spoke through Isaiah when Mike was reading them, where you warned the people that you were getting weary of their burdens. And that's a frightening thought. For those that we've thought about today who carry burdens of health, ill health, terminal health, concerns about family members who are under stress and illness, the idea that you as our God, as our creator could be weary of burdens is almost too much to think about and yet we know Lord that what you were trying to do through your prophets and what you try to do through us is to provoke people to turn to you because when we do you are not weary you dress us in white robes You fill every gap in our lives 
if we just ask you to. You help us to make sense of senseless things. And sometimes through people that are here today, you become our comforter. Lord, through all the things that people face, whether good or bad, we pray that you and your loving son Jesus will be close to us. That you will help us to find the right things to say, the right times to say nothing, and just to give a hug or a smile. That you'll provoke us to seek justice, to look after orphans and widows and those who just need company. And Father, we've got a really exciting time this Thursday when Patricia gets baptised. And I pray that you'll be with her to help her through that witness and to calm her nerves if there are any and to be with all of us and provoke us to stand next to her and be close to her, her brothers and sisters as she continues on her journey through life and towards you and your son. Father, be with all of us, whether we face tough times like exams or exciting times like weddings and birthdays. Just help us to keep you at the centre of all we do. In Jesus, amen. Steve. We're now going to take bread and drink wine just because Jesus asked us to do that, to remember him. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going we're to sing our next song now, which is really just a way of reminding ourselves of those simple instructions, the simple thing that Jesus asked of us.
wonder if we could stay sat down. You're welcome to stand if you would like. Dearest Lord God, thank you for the bread we are about to share. Amen. Our loving Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to be here this morning to hear such lovely words from Mike encouraging us to appreciate our relationship and our thankfulness for our relationship with you and Jesus. Such love, Heavenly Father. Difficult to describe, difficult to understand, and yet we acknowledge now by taking this wine that we remember Jesus and what he means to us in our day-to-day lives. Yes, our commitment is not just on a Sunday, but it is forever. Thinking about and being thankful for our relationship with your love and your love given to us through Jesus. So we offer our prayer of thanks now for this wine. Please bless us, Heavenly Father. We are so, so thankful as a family and we're so thankful that we have such a relationship and we're so blessed to have another lovely sister approaching that commitment and we look forward to that day this week when we will celebrate all together the love we share in you and Jesus. So we offer our prayer and thanksgiving for this wine. In Jesus' name, Amen. Lying in his arms, a moment of intimacy, remembering Jesus. And Richard's going to speak to us shortly. And we're starting to turn our focus towards not just this moment, thinking about his love for us, his unconditional love for each one of us, but turning to see his place and position in our our day-to-day lives. So we'll sing our next song together, Jesus Be the Centre. Joe, would you like to come and read James chapter 2 for us, please? James chapter 2. My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
but say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, that is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did, when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction, as the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. There aren't very many of us this morning, and it's not my place to stand up there and lecture you, so I'm going to do neither and I'll sit, um, if that's okay. Um, As most of you know, I I stepped down from the managing committee of this church in September last year, and there are some things that I don't miss about that at all, and there are some things that I really miss. One of the things that I really miss is that it gave me a really deep and close and intimate insight all the amazing things that happen quietly and in secret and that so many of you, so many members of this church, do to look after other people. And I suddenly realised that I'd lost sight of all that. And so this morning is some thoughts about that and try me to reflect again on all the great things that we do and perhaps that might help you too. I guess if there's a theme for this morning, it's this. 
Christian compassion is impartial and it always comes first. And we show it best when we follow Jesus' example in treating every single person that we meet as though they were our closest friends. I'd like by the time that I finish talking this morning to have found the answers to three questions and you might like to start thinking about them now. When does Jesus refuse to spend time with his friends when they most need him? Who were the missing friends of Jesus at the Last Supper? And when Jesus says, come dine with me, who would be the ideal guests at his dinner party? But it's about when Jesus refuses to spend time with his friends that I'd like to start this morning. My friend David Hardy died in January. Many of you will know David's brother Mike a lot better, um, but David was a really close friend. When I went away to college at age 18, when I went to a new church in Kenilworth for the first time, when I didn't know anybody at all, David was the first person I met, and he grabbed me by the hand with a big smile, and he dragged me physically into the church, found me somewhere to sit by, and made me feel as though I was really welcome. The person that he made me sit by then, at the end of the service, propelled me towards the young people at the front, including a certain person that you know really well, but that's another story. Um, but David became, for me, a surrogate father when I was away from home, a really good friend with whom I could share lots of the things that I love um, with somebody who appreciated them too. And David was there in times of crisis in my life and in meals and celebrations and subsequently looked after my brother Peter and my brother Thomas and my brother-in-law Tom. He conducted my sister Mary's wedding. And so he became intimately bound up and part of our family. And in January he died. There's never a good time for somebody to die, but January this year was about the worst possible time for anything else bad to happen to me. Evelyn Moore talks about it feeling like a blow upon a bruise, and that's what it felt like. I was already in a downward spiral, and then David died, and I felt, I don't even have time to grieve with you, there's just too much going, else going on in my life for me to be able to cope with this. And I took great comfort in the fact that Jesus had been there before, as he's been there before in so many of the things that we face in our everyday lives. And that's what we read about in Mark chapter 6. So what's happened in Mark chapter 6 is John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, his cousin, the person who'd shared the beginning of his work of teaching and preaching the good news of God's kingdom on earth. The person who had baptised him, who'd heard and witnessed God speaking to him. John the Baptist is executed. And that news comes to Jesus. And I think Jesus felt as we felt when we lose somebody that close, somebody that important to us. And his reaction is really human and something that we'd all identify. It's what we read about in Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. And it's more complicated because the disciples, a few days, weeks earlier, had been sent off by Jesus onto this great missionary trip to go and tell people the good news of his kingdom. 
and they've come back as well. And there are all these demands on Jesus, the demands of his disciples who must have been excited by what they'd seen and by what they'd witnessed, but exhausted because they'd had to give so much to all the people that they'd been speaking to. And John, Jesus' close friend, his intimate um, relation is dead. And all these things crowd around Jesus. And he said to them, verse 31, come with me by yourselves to some remote place and rest a little. So Jesus needs a break. He needs time to grieve, to reflect on what's happened to his friend John. He knows that his disciples need him because they're exhausted and worn out. But then the last thing that Jesus and his disciples need, needed to happen, happens. So they set off by boat privately for a remote place. But many saw them leave and recognised them. And people from all the towns hurried around on foot and arrived there first. When he came ashore and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we who hear those words, I remember... I meant to remember what God says to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. And they echo the sentiments of what Mike read to us from Isaiah chapter 1. My people, says God, are like sheep without a shepherd. Because your way of doing religion, the kind of sacrifices and offerings and worship you're offering, isn't meeting their needs. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. And they need me, and you're not bringing me to them, so I'm going to come to them instead. And so in Jesus, God comes to all those people and he has compassion on them because he knows that they need comfort and guidance and leadership. All those things they just weren't finding but had so great a need of. It was already getting late and his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already very late, so send the people off to the farms and villages round about and buy them something to eat. Give them something to eat yourselves, he says. And so instead of doing the things that would have been really understandable and really natural and really normal to do in that situation, Jesus does not say, go away. I've just lost my friend, my relative John. I'm in no place to help you. I've got my own grieving to do. He doesn't say, my disciples really need me now because they're exhausted after that mission work. His first impulse is of compassion And so his rest is brief and then impels both himself and his disciples outwards again. There are people who are unneeded, unwanted and unloved and it's my job to look after them. They're sheep without a shepherd. David wrote in his diary once and this was read at his funeral. I always pray for my church that no one will leave the service feeling unwanted, unneeded or unloved. It's what it's all about. And if that was true for David, I pray that it can become true for me because it was true for Jesus too. He didn't want anybody who came to him to go away feeling unwanted, unneeded or unloved. And that's why Jesus refused to spend too much time with his friends because there were people who needed him more and who needed his friendship just as much as his disciples did. And there might have been some missing friends at the Last Supper, and those are the people I want to think about next. Um, 
Matthew 18 might help. So this is the start of Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child, set him in front of them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you turn round and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself and becomes like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But if anyone causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Alas for the world that any of them should be made to fall. And there's a similar episode um, a little bit later on in Matthew when people bring their children to Jesus. The children want to come to Jesus for a blessing to be given to them and the disciples try and push them away. And we're not told what their motivations are. But it's probable that because they were Jews and because children had so little status in that society because they weren't adult and therefore could not learn or be taught the word of God, the disciples assumed they wouldn't be interesting to Jesus. But it's clear from those two passages that Jesus has a real heart for children and he really loves them and the children would respond to that love and so their parents bring their children to Jesus to bless them. And so Jesus is saying by welcoming those children, anybody can come to me. How significant or insignificant you perceive their status to be, anybody can come to me and I will love them all equally. It's something I see happening in practice at Friday Club with Jack. All those teenagers love Jack deeply and profoundly because Jack loves them and they respond to Jack's love and particularly for some of those girls there who don't know or have never met their father Jack becomes that father figure to them and when the time comes that Jack can no longer do that that will be a tragedy for us at Friday Club because the one thing that Jack is really good at is loving those children selflessly and they respond to that love and I think that's what's happening here and it's what Jesus is demonstrating to them Children aren't mentioned at the Last Supper, and this is a question for you to take away with yourselves as to why they're not mentioned. There's a place for children at the Passover feast that you celebrate and three questions for them to ask, but they're not mentioned in the Gospel. So were they there or were they not? Jesus was already welcoming to children other people who didn't seem to fit in. So where were they and were they there? That's a question for another time. But Jesus demonstrates And I've used this example of children to teach that lesson. Jesus teaching and living out that thing that David took to heart. I always pray for my church that no one will leave feeling unwanted, unneeded or unloved. It's what it's all about. And I guarantee that those children, those parents who came to Jesus went away feeling wanted and needed and loved in a way perhaps they'd never felt before. So when Jesus says, come dine with me, who are the guests at his ideal dinner party? You might have played this game when you've had a meal with friends. Who would you really like to have with you? And you can come up with some bizarre combinations. I think mine would be something like a combination of 
um, John Bon Jovi and Bob Dylan and Oliver Cromwell and, I don't know, somebody random like Ed Miliband. You can play this game in your head and think about who you'd like to have there. But who are the guests at Jesus' ideal dinner party? When Jesus is playing that game, who is he imagining is there with him? And the answer is in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is at a meal, Luke says, with a Pharisee, a religious expert. And he observes all sorts of interesting things about the way that people behave and are treated. And he says this in response. When you are having guests for lunch or supper, do not invite your friends, your brothers or other relations or your rich neighbours. They will only ask you back again and so you will be repaid. But when you give a party, ask the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. This is the way to find happiness because they have no means of repaying you. You will be repaid on the day when the righteous rise from the dead. And so what Jesus is saying, and he's got the right to say this because we've seen him behaving like this when the crowds come to him looking for food, when the children come to him looking for blessing. Jesus has the right to teach this to us. And he says, we must treat the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind as though they were our closest friends or the members of our family that we get on with best. The sign of Jesus' true followers are those who are as generous with their love to these as they are to their friends. And that was something that my friend David lived out in his life. You'd sometimes be out in Leamington or Kenilworth or Coventry and you know, go into a cafe and you'd see David sat there having coffee with some, with the big issue seller or you know, somebody, in somebody that he'd just met and found and saw was unwanted, unneeded, unloved. And he'd been generous in giving with his time. He treated them as though they were his closest friend and had coffee and cake with them, bought them a meal, and spent time with them, loving them as intimately as he loved me or Becky or any other member of my family or his own family at that. So Jesus loves his friends. He does. He says that really explicitly and clearly. But he also has no time for compassion fatigue. The needs and the wants and loves of others are always a priority for him. And he surprised his disciples, as I hope he continues to surprise us, by the people that he regards as his friends. And I talked about children as being an example of some outcasts that Jesus really welcomed to him and treated with such love and with such intimacy. And so the lesson for me in thinking about David and what Jesus teaches is this, that the sign of Jesus' true followers are those who are as generous with their love to those that might be regarded as outcasts as they are to their friends. And it's why we had James chapter 2 read for us so beautifully by Joe this morning. In my Bible it says this, my friends, you who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns in glory, you must always be impartial. If, however, you're observing the sovereign law laid down in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, that's excellent. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin. John tells us, through his letter, that that impulse to love, to love equally, to love generously, to not be impartial is the true sign of Jesus' followers. 
God has never been seen by anyone. But if we love one another, he himself dwells in us. His love is brought to perfection within us. And Jesus' death and resurrection, the things that we've remembered together by sharing bread and drinking wine and by spending time in each other's company, that's impartiality at its most extreme. That's dying for people you haven't even met, might not even know about, but being prepared to live impartially and generously for them so that they might come to a place in the kingdom. And if Jesus was able to be that impartial, my prayer from this morning is that I might be able to live as impartially as he did, praying for my church, for us, for each other, that no one will leave feeling unwanted, unneeded or unloved, because that's what it's all about. We alone are his best friend. This feels like a good hymn for us to end with, that we might, by walking close to Jesus, we might have a little bit of that rub off on us too, as Richard has been encouraging us to do. Would you like to stand? Lord Jesus, we are going to falter. We, We are going to be partial. We are going to not love everyone as if they were our best friend. Because we're not there yet, Lord. We're trying, but we're we're not like you yet, Jesus. But Lord, help us. We know we know that you are with us, Lord. Help us more to to become more like you. Lord Jesus, your beauty is undeniable. And we see in the examples we've thought about today the kind of love, such love, that belongs to your Father. Help us, Lord, as we grow in our walk with you to have more of that love. Lord God, we ask this and these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.